0: Good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for coming out this evening, and welcome to our online audience. So we have a really interesting program tonight, and it's bifurcated slightly, because Francine is here to talk about Death on a Winter Stroll, which is the new entry in her Mary Folger Nantucket Policing Series. And Mary has progressed to being Chief of Police yes, on Nantucket, so it's been kind of a long A Long Curve, Um, and originally she wrote those books back in the 1990s, and my mother, who was a a dedicated mystery fan, absolutely loved them. And then you took up Jane Austen and various other projects, and Mary kind of sat for a long time. Yes, she did. So we're gonna talk about how you can come back to a series after a long pause, and what you have to do to do that. So, Debany, loser. Um, Loser. I have it all wrong. (laughs) Would you introduce yourself, please?
1: Stephanie Lozer.
0: They're both hard,
1: Barbara. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it shouldn't be beyond me. I, oh, book Selling 101, learn to introduce the author. <laughs> Lord. In any case, <clears throat> Professor Lozer is here tonight to talk about her amazing new book, in which um, she reminds us that... Um, it wasn't all Jane Austen, or in fact the Brontes in the nineteenth century, and in fact the Porter sisters who were fascinating, were were bestsellers, and probably did did they outsell the Brontes? I know that she certainly they certainly did better than Jane for a long time.
1: I don't know the answer to that, and I should. I do, I, I <laughs> suspect that. They did during the 19th century, but then not during the 20th, of course.
0: That's we have one of those evenings where we challenge each yeah, other. Yeah. <laughs> if I love else it.
1: That's the answer. Be, you know, how, I don't know. Five, how many copies did Bronte <laughs> sold in the 19th century? No,
0: I think, well, I, you know. Yeah, which I,
1: decade, Barbara? Which <laughs> decade? <laughs>
0: Well, I was mentioning to well, well, we'll get to that. Let's go back and talk about Mary first, and we're going to do Mary Folger, and then we're going to do we're trivia. going to do the 19th century Jane Austen, yeah. the Bronte sisters, and the Porter sisters. So we
2: really are going to open up trivia yeah, to the entire
0: we world. We are. We're going to. Yes. In any case, um, Francine, when you decided to come back under some publisher pressure, or was it just you to writing the Mary Folger? How did that go? Were you in, asked yeah, to do so, it, or did you want to do it?
2: Uh, both so I should explain that I um, have written 30 books um, over 30 years and so the very first novel I wrote was the very first book in the series which is a series set on Nantucket Island um, featuring a female police detective and I wrote it as a bet with my husband because I was working as an analyst at the CIA at the time and I hated wearing stockings. (laughs) And I'm very bad at getting up in the morning and I had to be there at 8 a.m. and I was always late, which was a problem. So I said to him at one point, I really would prefer to write fiction on my own time like Jane Austen. I want a life like Jane Austen's. I want to get up in the morning have a little tea, take a walk in the garden, change my clothes, write for a few hours, change my clothes, go visit a friend across several miles of meadow, come back, change my clothes, go to dine with another friend, come home, change my clothes, go to a ball. And I said, what I really wanted was to have work as part of life. Not dominating life Um, so that the only time I felt was my own was the last hour of the day when I was sitting in bed reading and um, I had this idealized vision of an integrated life and Jane was my mascot but uh, he said to me you know you're um, you're dreaming you're are you a princess that's a pipe dream no one lives like that Um, and you're not going to quit your job to, quote, write in the suburbs, and you'll end up with three kids and five unfinished manuscripts in your um, bedroom closet, and I'm not going to let you do that because your education warrants that you not do that. And I said, oh, my God, why are women today forced to justify their educations? And I accepted his bet, and I wrote my first novel the final year of my employment at the CIA, and I sold it and became a writer. That first book was the first book in the Nantucket Mystery Series. It featured a female cop because there was at the time not a single female cop on Nantucket Island. Now there are many. Um, I was just there yesterday. Um, Over the course of the series, Mary has become police chief. Um, She inherited policing on Nantucket because her father and her grandfather were also police chiefs on the island. And if you know anything about Nantucket, uh, the Folgers are one of the four founding families of, of the island in the 17th century. So there's a rich heritage there, and she is the consummate native islander. Um, what happened with the series is that I started writing it in the 1990s um, as my escape ticket from the CIA, and um, then went on and started writing the Jane Austen mystery series, which we will be talking about with Debony. Um, I also wrote a variety of things, and time passed, and in fact, 20 years passed, and finally uh, the current publisher came to me and said, your books are not digitized, and they are out of print, and we would like to buy the rights, reintroduce the series, and have you continue it, and I said, that's really difficult to do because there's a 20-year lapse, and how do you pick up with characters 20 years later in their lives? They were 30 when I wrote their." their stories and suddenly they're going to be 50 or, you know, do I set the series back in the nineties? And I didn't want to do that because the 1990s is a horrible period for police detection. Um, there's no DNA, there's no national database of crime statistics. There's no cell phone, there is no laptop. There is, there is nothing that we associate currently with police detection. Um, and I said, you know, what i really like to do is revise the existing four books, which are out of print, not digitized, bring them forward to a sort of a contemporaneous present, and then write the next book in the series, which is what, in fact, I did. I revised the first four books, wrote book five, book six, this is book seven. Um, and it was an absolutely fascinating opportunity because... As a writer, you never read what you have published, ever. I mean, you never go back. You go on. You go forward. And to read the very first book I wrote with the benefit of 25 years of writing experience was terrifyingly <laughs> awful. Um, it was such a first book. It was it was just uh, prolix. And, oh, God. You're,
0: you're being way too uh, dark No, yourself. no,
2: no, no, no. I read that book, and I was like, oh. I ended up, you know, people talk about editing as as writers, and if any of you are aspiring writers, this is one of the most fascinating issues as a writer. Editing is not interior design. Editing is reconstructing the house. It is tearing out whole rooms down to the studs and just rebuilding them. And it is the most critical part of being a writer, in my view. Um, and over time, if you do it enough, it becomes your best skill. Uh, everything else is secondary. So anyway, I rewrote the series, and um, this is book seven is set on something called Christmas Stroll Weekend, which was just done, was this past weekend. Um, it's a very big event on Nantucket where Santa arrives by Coast Guard Cutter, and there's a massive parade, and... Thousands of people descend on the island in the middle of winter uh, and get stranded there because of planes and ferries being canceled, which is what happened this weekend. Um, They had 200 people who suddenly had nowhere to sleep on Saturday night, and people were taking them in and to their houses, and, you know, random hotelers were showing up at the dock and saying, I have a room, I have a room. Um, So it's a wonderful weekend, and um, it happens to be, locus for
0: the latest book and i'm done now inevitably a crime goes down more than one um and that's sort of otherwise mary wouldn't have anything to do right she'd just be (laughs) celebrating christmas so we can't quite go that far but um i think francine is a is a marvelous plotter and you also take advantage of real things um, things that you've experienced or things that are happening. And was it one or two books ago where the actual geographic nature of Nantucket with a subsidiary part of it was a part of your book?
2: Are you talking about Tucker Nook? Yeah. Yeah.
0: I couldn't think of the names. <laughs> the right. of names are not my thing tonight. We yeah. already know that, right? Okay.
2: Yeah. Uh, yes, there was. So there is a barrier island off the western end of Nantucket, which is um, called Tuckernuck. And it's privately owned by 40 families. Um, there's no public access to the island. There is no way to get there unless you live there and you have your own boat. Um, and it's only seasonal. It's summer. Uh, ownership and summer habitation. It's um, shut down by October and uh, there's no gas station, there's no coffee shop, there's no food store, there's no paved roads, there's no public utilities, there's no fire department, which is a huge issue. Um, It's about 900 square acres and um, I spent a year trying to figure out how to access it because it is so private that you cannot get there unless you know somebody who owns and lives there. Um, And I ended up doing this sort of networking thing where I knew someone named Coffin, and the Coffins are one of the other four founding families of (laughs) Nantucket, and he knew people who had summered on Tuckernuck and I would have coffee with them and then they And this went on for months, and then finally they put me in touch with somebody called a caretaker because on Tucker Nook, because there is no public access and there is no public transport, you cannot um, get anything to the island unless you have a caretaker, which is somebody you pay to ferry in his boat or her boat everything you need to survive to the island. Steak. Scotch. Solar panels, rose bushes, a lawnmower, someone to push the lawnmower, porta johns if you happen to throw your daughter's wedding on the island, as happened the day I went over. Um, I beams if you're building an extension to your house. I mean, it's insane. Everything is ferried to the island. And in return, all of the trash every single week is brought off the island by the caretakers who take it to the Nantucket Dump. Um, It is a massive service industry, and the people who live there only live there because other people sustain them, which is fascinating to me. So I ended up riding over with three caretakers named Manny, George, and Big Pete. (laughs) And they were native Nantucketers. Uh, They'd gone to Nantucket High, And uh, Manny had very few teeth. And they were worth millions of dollars. They owned a fishing wholesaler on the island of Nantucket. They owned a house on Nantucket. They owned a house on Tuckernuck. They owned a fleet of boats that transported everything to and from Nantucket to Tuckernuck, which includes medical emergencies. There's no way to land a Coast Guard boat or anything that can evacuate someone who's having a heart attack on Tuckernuck because it's surrounded by shifting sand shoals and you only can land on Tuckernuck if you know those shoals every day. Um, and Manny, George, and Big Pete know them. <laughs> so um, they were very loath to take me over there and as I was going I had I had this story, which was that I was going to look at a rental um, cottage that a friend of mine was going to rent to me and nobody rents anything on, on Tucker. And he goes, what are you going to do when you get over there? And I said, I'm going to walk around the alley. He goes, well, you know, it's all private. There are people there. They're not going to watch you on their property. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'll be very discreet. I'm just going to look at um, Potlatch, the, the little cottage. And uh, they let me off and they watched as I walked away and I felt very observed. Mm-hmm. Um, but they'd said to me as I went over, Are you going to the Lafarge's wedding? And I said, No. I said, You know, we've been taking the caterer over, the florist, all the port-a-johns, 125 chairs, and tomorrow we take all the guests. <laughs> and I realized the entire wedding was occurring because these three guys were moving it over to the island. A year later, I'm on the island and doing a signing, and the girl who was married there that day comes up and says to me, everybody's reading this book. <laughs> and uh, she, she, was, she was marrying Oliver Lafarge, and she you know she was the subject of the wedding that I had heard about. So it's a very peculiar place. And I set Death on Neck there, um, which is the previous book, uh, because uh, I, I wanted to think about how you would deal with a hurricane on tucker neck when you can't get the coast guard in you can't get anybody off in crisis conditions and um, that's the subject of that book
0: so any of you who are mystery fans here wouldn't recognize that Agatha Christie would have been really proud of Francine and definitely <laughs> wanted to go to Tucker now. I mean, it's an ideal um, situation for yeah. all of that. So uh, let's move on to Jane Austen and the Porter Sisters because after all, that's why you're here. I'm not even going to call you by name. I'm just going to finesse <laughs> it and call you hey. you. Professor! <laughs>
1: Stephanie, please. Yeah. Barbara, thank you.
0: That's okay. Um... Right, so uh, I thought that because Francine has, knows far more about Jane Austen than I do that you could have a no conversation but um, what inspired you to look at the Porter Sisters because that really is a fascinating subject.
1: Yeah. Uh, I just want to say too Francine, your novels are so well-researched, and that's one of the things that I admire about them. And one of the things I hope is true of sister novelists is that it's also well-researched. Instead of putting it to the use of fiction and imagination, (laughs) I'm trying to bring back to history two sisters who were very well-known in their own day, uh, were exact contemporaries of Jane Austen's, but have absolutely fallen out of literary history, and I think wrongly. (laughs) So that was sort of what inspired me to write the book, I didn't know I was going to write the book, Barbara. When I first started reading in these letters, but between Jane and Anne Mariah Porter, the two sisters, I just thought somebody should do it. You know, somebody should do that. <laughs> and it took me a little while to realize that that somebody would be would be me. And had I known that it would be twenty years later that this book would come out, I probably wouldn't have started. Uh, But I feel very proud of what I was able to unearth about these two sisters. Their lives are fascinating. If you care about Jane Austen, if you care about the Brontes, I hope that you'll also care about Jane and Mariah Porter.
0: So such is the magic of the Huntington Library, where (laughs) I do have spent time that it seduced you (laughs) into all this. But uh, one of the things I thought was a point that you make, which I really find fascinating, um, is that you say that, That Jane Austen, there's a certain mystique about her, some mystery about her, because her family, particularly her sister Cassandra, destroyed most of her correspondence and papers. So we don't know as much about Jane Austen as we might, whereas the Porter sisters left reams of stuff, but it's fragmented. So part of the chase really is to try to run it all down and piece it back together. Was that part of the challenge?
1: Yes. And, you know, so Jane Austen, I know many of you in the audience know this well, about 160 letters survive. For the Porter sisters, there were family papers numbering in the United States alone in the 7,000 range. Wow. And they were in three different libraries. So to try to piece together what was happening in what year and who the people were they were referring to in some of these letters. It, it was a puzzle. It was, it was a mystery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it felt like being a detective in some ways, trying to figure out in the letters when the sisters would write about having passionate feelings toward Apollo or Agamemnon. I would think, did they really know somebody named Agamemnon? <laughs> <laughs> and of course they didn't. They were writing in code. They were trying to use veiled names so that if somebody came across the letter or one of their relatives snatched the letter from them, they wouldn't really know who it was it being referred to in the letters. But eventually I was able to decode who they were referring to when they would describe these men they had uh, deep crushes on. They were the, both sisters were incredibly, I think, genius writers, genius writers. They invented the modern historical novel, I think, is one claim you could make before Sir Walter Scott did, although he got the credit. Uh, but they also fell in love very hard. and although neither sister ever married, their letters detail all of the ways that they um, fell for the wrong men and tried to try to work through their feelings for that. And uh, I think that is just fascinating, too. If we come to it, knowing Jane Austen and thinking certain things about what it was like to be an educated woman, then to be a polite woman, then if you read the Porter sister stories, you'll realize that actually the opportunities and the possibilities were far more expansive <laughs> than we might think uh, and then they're true so that's that's another thing that I'm really grateful from their letters to be able to have a sense of
0: why do we have so many letters is a good question and I think the only parallel I can come up with is because you know they they were very close and they wanted to communicate all the time so if you just think of it as like a constant stream of tweets that really is what it was wasn't yeah, or it or the way, the think
2: the way relatives text. Yeah, or
0: texting, right, yeah. either way. Yeah. Uh, yeah, texting probably would be would be fair. But we know, we're not used to... We're, we've gotten so used to short-form communication and, you know, appalling spelling and no punctuation and speed and all the rest of it, I don't think we realize how people dashed off letters, you know, really beautiful letters.
1: Absolutely, and some of them are very much dashed off. But I think also they saw their letters as a kind of training ground for fiction. So they didn't... Um, sometimes they were only separated by a couple of miles. They lived in small lodgings, uncomfortable, and they would get invitations to go stay with somebody in a grand home or a a place where they would have access to social events. And so one sister would stay home with their widowed mother, and the other would head off to this more grand event. And even if they were only separated by a couple, couple of miles, they would write these letters. And sometimes they took down dialogue they they tried to record conversations they were a part of so it's like being a fly on the wall of regency england to read their version of a conversation they were in i mean i just think we don't have a lot of records like this right it's beautiful so dashed off yes but also crafted and yeah. careful and that, you know, clearly, like I said, a training ground for their fiction in their letters.
0: And in point of fact, I'm I'm going slightly blank here, as Richardson. Anyway, what is usually thought of as the first full novel in English is it Pamela? Do yes. I have it right? <laughs> <Well>. Okay, Pamela <laughs> is in fact an epistolary novel, meaning that because people didn't know how to write fiction, it wasn't a thing that. In order to structure the novel, it was written in a series of letters, and that created the dialogue. One person would write, and then another person would answer back. You know, somebody, I can't think, I'm sorry, this is not my name, it really isn't, um, <laughs> wrote wrote a novel like that some years back, and it was all in email. And the email headers were were yeah. part of the, the part right. of it. Meg Cabot, that's where it was. So this is proving that old age doesn't wipe out your memory. It's just a retrieval system (laughs) that takes so long. But anyway, um, you know, I I think that Richardson wrote that partly because he didn't know how to structure a novel and letters were easy, but also everybody understood this constant stream of right. letter writing, it didn't seem contrived, it didn't seem artificial. It was what people actually did. It
2: was a written conversation.
1: And what I love is four four students who are here from ASU who are in my history of the novel seminar and read Pamela. <laughs> so at least, at least five of us in the room have recently read Pamela. Uh, uh, and I love that. I just love that.
0: I voluntarily read Pamela. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then then he wrote another one, which wasn't nearly as good. But anyway. So then stop with Pamela. (laughs) (laughs) Go, go there. Uh
1: But I think that, you know, anytime we try to say something was the first, we're finessing, we're finessing. There's always something before that might've been first. And when I say Jane Porter wrote the first modern historical novel, that is also a finesse. people were using historical materials in fiction for years, for at least a century before then. Some of that we read together too, right? Homer. (laughs) So
0: so define it, what is the modern historical novel that you're talking about? So what
1: I think she did that was innovative is she took the properties of the domestic fiction, the kinds of things we associate with Jane Austen, with the courtship novel, and she combined it with the machinery of historical fiction. And the the thing that she did that was unusual, she called it a biographical romance. She included fictional characters and real characters, but she breathed new life into them. She wrote about war so well that some of her contemporaries said, it had to have been written by a man who was in battle. This couldn't have been written by a woman. Uh, and, it, you know, she came by her knowledge. Honestly, she was from a military family. But she just made so, so much of it seem, um, seem real alongside this machinery of romance and domesticity. So the home fires were burning. These heroes she wrote about were doing interesting things in their domestic lives and were, of course, perfect there. <laughs> but then they were out on the battlefield and also participating in, in real life great events. Um, so I think that was what was new. But it also was, I think, the first bestseller in the historical fiction genre. So for that, she should get some credit
0: too. I, mean, I think you mentioned some extraordinary number of books that she sold.
1: Yeah, so in the United States alone, before 1840, a million volumes of Jane Porter's fiction had sold. Uh, wow. Yeah, that's crazy. There that were apparently is crazy. five presses going around the clock for years selling cheap copies in the auction markets of, of Jane Porter's two best-selling novels in particular. Uh, but both sisters were, were global phenomena. They were household names. And um, they never got rich. All of those million, co- million volumes. Uh, and, of course, each, each novel had a couple of volumes. So trying to figure out exactly right. how many novels that is right. is a little bit tricky. Uh, but each sister, uh, published and published, 26 books separately and together, they published. And they never got rich. They
0: never got rich.
1: <laughs> they were always struggling. And so, Publishers that's...
0: were pirates all along. <laughs> There's no question about that. Yeah. So, Francine, tell us about, um, you know, you, in order to write, well, how is it that you have structured the Jane Austen novels? We've had this conversation many times about sure. how you choose to tell
2: I just, I wanted to ask Devon a question first, if I could, um, could you talk a little bit about why the Porter sisters wrote? And I asked this question <coughs> because I think we're agreed Jane Austen wrote, partly because she was a writer and loved writing, loved storytelling, but also she very frankly wanted to make money. So, and there was a sense of social compulsion about her writing that she needed to do it to maintain her standards and her living. Mm-hmm. Um, did they feel a similar compulsion? Was there was there multiple causality in, in spurring them to write? And
1: I think there are a lot of similarities. Of... <coughs> Anna Maria Porter published her first book of short stories in 1793 when she was 14 years old. So I think wow. Jane Austen must have right. known when she was writing her juvenilia that there were other young women publishing. Their work uh, you know this was yeah. a choice Austin made apparently not to do so. Uh, but but Porter needed the money. The family needed the money, and so that was part of it. But it's also true that the two sisters uh, like the Brontes, we know, had a kind of fantasy world together. and early on they were writing poems and uh, and story <coughs> letters that were making up identities. you know, Mariah would write to Jane. As you are my queen, as I am your queen, you must obey me. And, you know, they just, they were, they were playing around. Um, They had no more than a charity school education. Their mother wasn't educated. Their mother um, was widowed. And it's clear that they took a kind of sustenance from reading and Mm -hmm. writing and disappearing into these fictional worlds together. They spent lots of time in libraries, too. Hmm. So yeah. I think there's a real similarity with, with Jane Austen and writing for the money definitely was there from the first, but also it was a, a kind of identity and a way to um, to craft a life, I think, as well. I think they, they yeah, worked their you know, lives.
2: <laughs> right. And something that's always fascinated me about Jane is that she she sort of said this implicitly often when she would speak of her verbal ability, both orally and written, um, that it was a kind of power she had that she could exert over her world, that she could dispose of the people around her by just reducing them to a comment that was devastating, apt, and witty. Um, And she could do it in print, and she could do it in conversation. And that gave her a sense of power. Um, which women rarely had in her milieu and in her mm-hmm. economic station and and status. Um, and I find that so interesting that writing became a tool for a lot of women to exercise power,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, even if it was only in correspondence where they could feel gratified about sending a particular person who would recognize their verbal ability and that became sort of a, a source of pride um, in that that verbal power. Um, it has always seemed to me that words are women's weapons. And whether they're written and whether it's fiction or fact, um, that's just such an interesting segment You're of life. You're into
0: Snowflower and the Secret Fan, kiddo.
2: There you go. Yeah. You know, yeah. The,
0: the yeah. Whole, it's about a, a language, a Chinese language that women um, developed private to them. Mm-hmm. Became a, If you've never read Snowflower and the Secret Fan, I cannot recommend it enough by Lisa C. Lisa will be here, I can't believe I can say this, Lisa will be here on June 24th. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's it's it, it addresses exactly what you're saying, that these powerless women, you know, their bound feet and mm-hmm. all the rest of it, developed a way to communicate by secret writing, and they passed it around on on fans.
2: And to travel via the power of imagination.
0: Mm-hmm. Anyway, back to Jane Austen. Sorry, okay. No, it's okay. Just going to jerk it back there. Because one of the things that I found so interesting about your series is that you chose to write the things that you make up about Jane, the fiction, Mm -hmm. in the interstices of her real life. So you've had to look for all those holes in her life that the missing letters might have documented. So maybe we should be grateful for Cassandra without her. We wouldn't have had your books. Yeah,
2: I know. I'm not a huge Cassandra fan. Uh, So yes, um, the primary, I've written 14 novels set in Jane Austen's life, um, which are detective novels. They begin in 1802, and I'm currently writing the 15th, which is set in 1817, the year of her death, and it's called Jane and the Winchester Schoolboy, and it's set in Winchester where she died, um, around Winchester College, which is a British public school for, for boys. Um, Six of Jane Austen's, actually seven of Jane Austen's nephews um, went through Winchester, so um, that's one of the reasons I've said it there. Um, The books follow Jane Austen's life. They're based primarily on the primary source of her letters and on um, various sources about her life, like the Austin family record, written by Jane James Edward Austin, her nephew, who was one of the Winchester schoolboys, um, so they're they're somewhat rooted in fact, um, because she wrote to Cassandra when she was not with Cassandra. Cassandra was her sister, and the 160 letters, roughly, that Devaney referred to. Um, were primarily written to Cassandra. There are there are a few anomalies in there of letters to her brothers and so forth. Um, there are gaps in the written record because at times Jane was traveling with Cassandra and didn't write to her. So there's no record of what she was doing. And um, in the course of a life, as we've seen with the Porter sisters, you can amass thousands and thousands of letters, and we assume given how quotidian the habit of letter writing was, that in fact Jane had thousands and thousands of letters out there. She had five brothers, she wrote to, um, as well as Cassandra. But for whatever reason, we only have 158 letters of hers over a, basically a 20-year span. So, um, it is a kind of edited record, and I have chosen to fill the gaps with fiction. Um, and I've had a really good time doing it, and I've been doing it for 25 years at this point. Um, So I have been living with Jane, and it is really painful to have to die through Jane uh, as I'm doing in the book I'm writing right now, Uh, but it's been kind of a privilege to live in her mind and throw my voice as as Jane. Um, It's very much the voice, if you haven't read the books, of her letters, which is intimate, first person, obviously. The the voice of her novels is very massaged. It's very edited. Um, it's passive voice in the sort of early 19th century, highly edited, highly stylized way that can feel inaccessible. But the voice of her letters is incredibly intimate. It's immediately accessible. It's intensely funny. She is a viciously funny woman. And um, it's also a fantastic window in her world because she'll talk about the price of cherries as trimming, fake cherries as trimming for her bonnet. She'll talk about, you know, somebody down the road in childbed. She'll talk about what they're planting, her mother digging potatoes. Um, It's a very detailed and precise record of her life and um, I can cull that for the fiction and and have done so. Um, The Winchester book is an interesting example because uh, Those of us who follow Austin know that she died in Winchester in July of 1817. Um, But in researching it was fascinating to me to to figure out that the reason she was in Winchester at all was partly because of her lifelong friends, the big sisters, Catherine, Althea, and Elizabeth, uh, whose younger brother, Harris, she had accepted as a possible husband, and then jilted 12 hours later. Because he was six years younger and had a stutter, and she just she just could not love him, and yet he was master of many down house, which was an amazing estate, uh, and would have set her up for life. And had she accepted him, we would not know her name, because she would probably never have published her fiction. Um, but at age 26, which is when my series starts, she chooses to turn her back on marriage and embrace, essentially, the life of an independent young woman who is unmarried and pursues her fiction um, more sedulously than she would have had she married. Um, Her friend Elizabeth Big, who is Harris's older sister, lives in Winchester, lives, in fact, in the Cathedral Close. Her son, William, is a schoolmate of Jane's nephew, James Edward Austin. And um, it is through Elizabeth Heathcote who recommends the house that Jane goes to live in and recommends the surgeon she sees that Jane comes to die in Winchester. Um, So the the sort of whole family associations and the associations with Winchester Public School are the backbone of the book I'm about to finish here. Um, And uh, it's very much about British schoolboys and their internizing wars.
1: Francine, <laughs> can I ask a question? Sure. Some of the students are here. Uh, we mm-hmm. also just recently read Sanditon together. Yes. And I'm wondering if that will play a role at all, the writing of Sanditon, her last You know,
2: yeah, she was, She was. I, I reference her working on Sanditon. What interests me about Sanditon is that I think it sprang from her visit to Cheltenham um, Spa, which occurred in the, the book that's not here, but uh, Uh, The current novel in the series is called Jane and the Year Without a Summer. It's set in 1816 and Jane is beginning to to become ill. Um, She decides to go to Cheltenham Spa in May of that year. And Cheltenham was kind of like a bastardized version of Bath. Bath was the historically genteel watering hole where people went to take curative waters and really went to disport themselves, go to concerts, see the theater, buy new fashions, and socialize. It was it was saying you were going to a spa for your health, but really going to pursue dissipation. So it was kind of like a, a double-edged sword. Cheltenham, when Jane went, she left May 23rd, 1816, and spent two weeks there, it was a very raw town. It was still under construction. There was mud in the streets. They were about to open their new assembly rooms, and the Duke of Wellington was coming to open them, which was, you know, akin to having Kim Kardashian show up to open your, your uh, spa. Um, she spent two weeks there trying to get better and realizing she wasn't getting better. And she continued to get worse for the year that followed until she died. And I think there's a lot of that feeling in Sanditon where she's looking at the raw mercantilism, the promotion, the pinning of fortunes on the puffing up of a place that can save your life or be, you know, the fulfillment of your dreams and come to this place, have a great time, realize your your ambitions. We are all realizing our ambitions in Sanditon. Um, I think that she got that sort of blueprint from stay in Cheltenham, looking at the, the raw earth, the buildings thrown up hastily, the, you know, the promenades of people, the, the string quartet playing as you're drinking down these chokingly awful iron infested waters, sulfurous waters, um, and going home to have what was called the purge where you basically had diarrhea for an hour and they would recommend that you take the waters early and then have your breakfast because you needed an interval between taking the waters and actually eating anything. Um, I mean, you know, it's just, it's all prestidigitation, right? And and that comes through in Sanditon. Um, so I really think that, that that's where she got a lot of it. Um, and then she's writing Sanditon as she dies. Um, and it's kind of about the hollowness of of the promises of being able to save yourself from something that's incurable.
0: I'm, I'm. I was going to make a comment about the British diet. In case you, think, <laughs> in case you think that this is exaggerated, the British diet is so sludgy that constipation is a chronic condition. For many people, I'm serious, um, in England. And so mineral waters with the with the iron and so forth actually work like x likes. And I mean, I've been to Bath and I've actually drunk the water there. but I did not have that experience. But, uh, but people would often go and, you know, it... it It would be like, I think their liver is what they actually thought they were benefiting. They thought they were like washing out their liver. But the truth is they were just cleaning out their digestive system to kind of go back. And, you know, let's face it, if you lived in England where central heating was not even a possibility at that point, if you were somewhere where they had hot mineral springs, you know, bath, I mean, even the Romans like bath, you know, I mean, that's where it came from. Don't you think that, that, you know, that was part of it? It was oh, just absolutely. to feel better than yeah, all I, the way around?
1: I, I love that we know that quack doctors at the time were just packaging up anything and saying, bath water for sale. <laughs> you know, this, yeah. is, uh, th- this kind of belief that something's going to cure you, uh, you know, we obviously has a very long and interesting history, too. But the bath waters are fascinating.
0: So if you have this detailed record of the Porter sisters' lives, then If you wanted to write a novel about the Porter sisters, you would not have the luxury that Francine has of being able to go and say, ha, there's a gap here. I can make this up.
2: There's always a gap. There's (laughs) always a gap.
1: That is so true.
2: I wrote about Jack Kennedy. I mean, talk about a documented life. No, there's always a gap. You can, you know, that's the wonderful thing about history. You can always exploit a gap.
1: But I have not written fiction. I've been working in, in nonfiction and criticism, and that's been a, a comfortable space for me. But I was telling Francine that my younger son said, Mom, why don't you write a novel? That's what people really want to read.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so term about tenure, I then, <laughs> <laughs> right? I yeah. know. I'm, I remember years ago, I had a good friend who was a lawyer and in, in, in a novelist and over her desk. She wrote publisher practice
1: yeah you know, <laughs> right. publisher
2: or a parish or right. you know, it was right. kind of the
0: same thing but well, what I hope is that
1: sister Novelist reads like a novel that's what. Right. I, that's what right. I really right
2: hope. and the best nonfiction does so what's your next thing what are you working on now
1: so I will d- certainly do another Austin project that mm-hmm. is that is something that I think uh, I have in me and, and want to return to I've been missing working on an Austin book so that mm-hmm. will be in the wheelhouse but then I will probably uh, really take a turn that uh, only people who know me would expect, which is that I'm, I'm writing about roller derby and oh, excellent. history of roller derby. Oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so and that uh, I've got materials for that, and and I'm excited to and tell the academic
0: study of roller derby, <laughs> sociological Again, I mean, I would study. Try, I would
1: try to make it narrative nonfiction. I, there, there, are, with a subject like roller derby, and right. for mm-hmm. those of you who don't know, I used to play. I still skate, and I used to play roller. Used to compete at roller derby under the name Stone Cold Jane Austen, which was. <laughs> A, a part of a part of my life that has been great fun and sustaining, but I don't think you can write about roller derby in a driveway. You really shouldn't. No, that, you should not do that.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I yeah. would try to
1: make it lively. And there's certainly there's so much about the history of it that is fascinating and
2: untold. That's wonderful. I will buy that. Uh, <laughs> my my final question for you is if there were. So so some of you may know Jane Austen's brother's house, Edward. Um, Her elder brother had estates various places in England, and one of them was called Chawton Great House. And it is now the Center for the Study of Early Women's Women's Writing. Writing. Mm Right. And so they've they've kind of done what Devaney has done uh, in her course and looked at people who are in the penumbra of Jane Austen, as it were. Uh, I'm wondering if, other than the Porter sisters, who would you love to write about? Or research and write about
1: Well, I'm grateful for the people who have written about Mary Robinson, who, if you haven't read Paula Byrne's biography of Mary Robinson, I very highly recommend that. She features in this book, too, uh, that there are lots of figures who deserve to be Mm -hmm. to to deserve to have their stories told and the history of women's writing is what I do I do have a couple of ideas I'm not ready to tell them (laughs) partly because any biographer is afraid the moment you say I'm going to do this one somebody else is going to beat you to it so I, I do have a couple of ideas. I hear you,
2: sister. That I have happens a to me of every ideas, day. But they yes. would be
1: years long projects, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly mm-hmm. where I'm going to throw myself in, and, and how many more of these I have in me. You know, when something takes you 20 years, you realize you don't. You probably get to do one of those, right? This is, right. This is Perhaps. a marathon that you don't get to run twice. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. We should mention that um, there are wonderful footnotes and bibliography. I mean, this is a book that, um, you know, has serious academic features, right? And
2: spurs further reading.
0: Yep, exactly. Yeah. So if you're interested in this, you can follow the footnotes and take the reading suggestions. Um, actually, is the bibliography just work that you consulted yourself, or does it also sort of include suggestions?
1: So it, the the notes do include the places where I got details from, but I would say this, there is not a secondary sources reading guide in here, but I think that's something that I should add to the book's website because that is a great idea. So sisternovelist.com is where I added a lot of extra illustrations. There are 16 beautiful pages of illustrations in Mm -hmm. here uh, showing what the sisters look like and the places that they're affiliated with, but I didn't get to include all of them, so I put some of them on the website, and that is a great idea, Barbara, to include further reading. Um, So I'm going to add that. Thank you for the suggestion.
0: So I have a question, which is how come the sisters who were so so intelligent. How did they keep picking these loser men? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there was so, a certain amount of, you know. The men
1: they chose were gorgeous. All very, very handsome. Uh, brilliant, talented. But I think it comes from the reform a bad boy. Kind of, you know, reform a rake. Rake. Feeling like. I'm going to make him a good man, Mm -hmm. Uh, which we know now, I think that that doesn't work very well. (laughs) But I think in the early 19th century, maybe that wasn't yet a a stereotype or at least uh, in the circles they ran in, there wasn't a sense that this was a this was a common mistake.
0: So they were basically enacting *The Devil's Cub* by Georgia Hare yeah, in an yeah. early <laughs> version. Because if you read Jane Austen, and Tiffany uh, and I have had this discussion before, and there's some attitudes in Georgia Hare you might need to take into context, I think that she is absolutely brilliant. Uh, Francine and I, and Dana Stavino over here, another author. We we can actually quote whole passages from Georgette Hare or figure out exactly what's happening. She's absolutely brilliant as a you know, um, and she too was not a very nice person. If you read her biography, oh, it's like kind you. of shattering <laughs> you know, to discover she had she had a real edge to her. But I think um,
2: it's that power over people again verbal power
0: yeah,
1: yeah. Um, there's I think the porters were nice you know i think they were, were they? nice yeah. Yeah. yeah and they, yeah, they, they remind across. me of eleanor and marianne dashwood oh, jane was oh, like lovely. the sensible tall dark strong serious one and mariah was the light bright sparkling um you know flirtatious hopeless sister. romantic and yeah. certainly as with Georgette Hare, there are some things that the sisters did that you just want to say what were you thinking? <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> and they were not always 100% on the right side of history. Totally acknowledge that. Well,
0: the book I mentioned, The Devil's Cub, is about a young woman who um, ends up a reforming a rake um, mm-hmm. with the cooperation eventually of his, of his powerful and enigmatic and terrifying father. Um, but, you know, it really is. And I have to say that I often attribute my first marriage, which was unfortunate, to having <laughs> the devil's I really do. I, too, you know, was like a porter sister there. And, and it didn't work out. And sadly, he went off and died in the <laughs> Well, he did. You know, that wasn't part of that, but he, he did die. I was a very young widow. So, but I was. I'm
3: sorry. Was
0: just, I, know, the way know, I we're, we're talking it. about murder here, remember. It's really true. Uh, but, you know, I often think we that. We won't he,
2: look into how he died. No.
0: He died as a Green Beret in Vietnam. I'm so sorry. Okay. He, he, I, was, I apologize. Actually, he was really I was being a hero. Um, yeah. But there we were. And, you know, I was only 20. Um, and then I was a 21 year old widow. And you know um life goes on but i I've, I've often i've often thought about you know fate changed my path right but what if what if you made a choice like that and fate didn't change your path and particularly in a in an age where if you made that kind of marital choice you didn't just walk away from it right so you know there's some you know it'd be it, it, there's some interesting parallels here with Louisa May Alcott if you think about it, you know she wrote a lot of penny dreadfuls because she was a person who needed money. Um, she was somewhat later, what well, we're talking about. It was post-Civil War, obviously, yeah. because yeah. of little women. Yeah. But, um, you know, again, women didn't have a lot of um, agency. It was hard for them to make money. If you tried to stay respectable, you had to do something that was acceptable. You know, writing was so a, an acceptable
2: the Porter's thing. B- acknowledged their authorship
1: right they most of their books they yeah. published under their own names yeah. which not is an all.
2: interesting not all difference from all Jane didn't yeah right yeah
0: in fact you're wondering about the Jane and the Waterloo um that yeah. that's a feature of the plot right yeah. is that she what did she call herself I'm trying to remember a lady. just by a lady was that it
2: which got mangled in publication as by Lady A. Right. Isn't that funny? With a dash. <laughs> so people thought she was titled and everybody was trying to figure out who Lady A was. Lady Atherton, Lady Adley Crombie. And didn't
0: the Prince Regent, didn't didn't he actually require her to um, yes, dedicate so, a novel? He was a truly dreadful person, so having to dedicate a novel to the Prince Regent would have been you know, hard.
2: I really don't think he was dreadful. I think he's a lot like the current king just sort of befuddled, well, not terribly, anyway, but that's a different discussion. But yeah, so. uh, Isn't this
0: fun? Isn't this more fun than going to class? (laughs) (laughs) You never know where it's gonna go. No, you
2: know. you don't. Um, But yeah, so in uh, the fall of 1815, Jane Austen had five brothers. One of them, Henry, was a banker. Um, He was devastated by Waterloo because Waterloo was a great victory for the British, but it ended the war economy. And they had been spending so much money on materiel, troops, ships, horses, everything to, to combat Napoleon that when the wars ended, suddenly there was this enormous recession. And it was combined with troops coming back, both from the Navy and the Army, um, being cashiered and being unemployed. Um, Also in 1815, there was a volcanic eruption in the South Pacific that created was the worst volcanic uh, eruption in recorded volcanic history. Um, And that is still true. Uh, It created a cloud of ash around the entire globe and altered the climate for the entirety of the next year. So this economic recession, unemployment was combined with massive um, crop failure uh, throughout Europe and the United States and famine. So you ended up with food riots, bread riots in 1815, 1816, and it was basically the worst year ever, ever. Um, And Henry, her brother's bank, failed. um, And he went bankrupt. He had involved two of his brothers to the tune of what would be in present-day dollars. Each one of his brothers had bankrolled his bank t- to the tune of 1500000 million present-day dollars, as had his uncle, uh, James Lee Parrott. And so there was a combined losses of $3 million in the Austin extended family. Um, Henry was had to sell his furniture at auction, public auction, and basically showed up and landed on the Austin family in Chawton, Jane and her mother, her widowed mother, who lived at the expense of her landed brother. Um, So it was a horrible year. In the fall of 1815, Henry's bank, first bank is failing. He becomes ill, some sort of lingering fever. They think he's gonna die. Everybody descends on his apartment in uh, London. Jane goes to nurse him. And he's visited because he has bankrolled the prince regent and his cronies, given them personal loans, which is part of why he goes bankrupt, um, by the prince regent's personal physician. Goes to visit Henry Austin. Encounters Jane in his apartment, or home, in Han's place, and realizes that she's the author of the novel Pride and Prejudice which came out two years before, and goes back and tells people he knows in the regent's household the Carlton House. And suddenly Jane gets a visit from James Stenier Clark, who is the regent's personal librarian, and he says, the regent has all of your volumes. His daughter loves your work. We would like you to dedicate your next book to him. And this is a little delicate because Jane really hated the prince regent. And um, she disliked him because of his treatment of his wife. He had married bigamously his cousin, who was German, whom he did not know and had married purely because his father ordered him to. He spent three weeks with her, just long enough to get her pregnant with the heir to the throne, who was Charlotte, who loved Jane Austen's work, but had never really lived with his wife, Caroline. And so Jane says in her letters, you know, I, I feel for his wife because she is a woman, and um, took Carolyn's part against the Prince Regent, which was sort of the sort of the um, lady die issue of of their day um, because the Prince Regent cheated on Caroline with everybody and had numerous mistresses, and, as I said, had previously married somebody before he married her uh officially and so you know it was kind of like the the Lady Di um controversy that we've all known um so yeah she had to dedicate her book Emma to the Prince Regent and she wrote a very perfunctory dedication and sent it off to the librarian and he sent it back and said no this is really what you should say (laughs) yeah she had to put the more fulsome dedication in her novel and bring it out. And then she had to pay at her own expense to have it bound in leather handsomely and send off a copy to the Prince Regent as his most humble servant. And the whole thing was just really
1: hard. And what I love about all those stories is that the Porter Sisters had uh, some similar experience to every one mm. of those. Mm. And so all of these things, when you read them in contrast, are are just that much more interesting. Um, uh, They also had their experience at Carlton House with James Daniel Clark. Uh, one of their brothers owed money to Henry Austin's bank. You know, oh, wow. so there are all of these kinds of things. Although the Porter sisters never met Jane Austen, to it's my knowledge, the six degrees th- of... you can learn a lot more about Austin through the Porters, and I think we just have so much more to to understand. Even the very you know beautiful description you just gave Francine of Austin's life and the life of those around her. There's just so much more to know.
0: Yeah. So do you think we should take questions yes, for a few minutes? please. Right? yeah. We're kind of running over here because we've all geeked out, but we do that. So does <laughs> anyone have a question? Any of you students over there like to raise a hand? So, well,
3: we know that, like, Cassandra burned a lot about uh, James' letters, So I'm sort of wondering how how were is how it? were the Porter sister's letters
1: you know that I do I or I have some inkling that's a great yeah. question Andrea and you know one of the things that Jane Porter who lived longer than her younger sister Anna Maria one of the things she says is I cannot bring myself to destroy anything my sister has written mm. after her death she just mm. she loves her so much she misses her so much she cannot bring herself to destroy the papers which does add a little wrinkle to how we think about Cassandra, Cassandra. and Jane doesn't it yes uh, but she said I absolutely will not destroy these as you know, they, they should be forever in the world as far as she's concerned. But she says, I don't want them published. So she wouldn't necessarily be happy that they were in fact, not only kept, but sold at auction. And they right. for a pittance right. after mm-hmm. she died. There was no living relative to get them to a biographer, which is I think what Jane Porter thought would happen mm-hmm. that a trusted biographer would, you know, read through them, take out the embarrassing bits about Agamemnon and, you know, <laughs> leave, leave the rest of it, the stuff that looked good and tell that tell the story that way. But instead, the, all the papers came on to the auction market, sold for almost nothing, and most of them ended up in the large home and large collection of a notorious manuscript hoarder. He wanted to own every single manuscript that oh, wow. ever existed. Yeah. And his heirs spent a century trying to unload all Of this paper, (laughs) so the the Porter sisters' letters were, you know, and I do talk about this a little bit at the end of the 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 biography. The Porter sisters' letters were kind of locked up like a gothic heroine in a castle, (laughs) uh, you know, for a century, and so that's one reason that there hasn't been a biography before this one of the Porter sisters. The papers were squirreled away, and then they lost their celebrity, so that's how they survived.
0: Luckily, they weren't burned. You know, if you
2: think about it, it could have been. Yeah, we always talk about. Cassandra destroying the letters, but I think it's worth mentioning that Jane's brother Frank burned all of her correspondence, which he had kept his entire life um, at the the end of his life. And he was a sea captain. She wrote to him constantly. They were very close. Um, And he kept all of her letters, and then suddenly he just burned them all at the end of her life. So it was kind of a habit that people had. they thought they were protecting.
1: Yeah. They thought they were yeah. protecting the subject, themselves, the family, mm-hmm. clearly. It's
2: kind of like deleting your text messages.
0: Sure, that's a really big question today is if somebody dies, what happens to all of their social media, all of their electronics, all the rest oh, of yeah. it, you know, it's something yeah. interesting to think about that this issue hasn't gone away, it's just changed form, right? Yeah
3: one for Francine. So, Francine, I've read all of the the Mary series, and I absolutely love them, and Mary has grown throughout the entire series. What is it uh, that you do to make sure that your characters develop and grow throughout all of your novels, making them as much alive as possible?
2: It's a really interesting question, simply because of the revision of the series. So, as I mentioned earlier, I rewrote the first four books. And part of that was tightening the writing, updating the technology, deleting references to Vietnam, things that were archaic for now. Um, But I also had to change Mary's character to a degree because it was fascinating to me as somebody, I'm almost 60. um, I go back to read the book I had written when I was 30 and I recognized that the young woman I created was less interesting than the young women I saw my sons dating. Um, and I realized that, you know, I came of age when Title IX was passed. And I, I mentioned that specifically because I grew up in a world where girls didn't compete in sports. Um, the kids who came up with my kids. Had a totally different experience of being girls and young women and I felt Mary didn't necessarily represent their reality in the, her original form and she was too tentative she was too weak she was too dependent on men in her life and that didn't work anymore so part of the luxury of revising that series was to create her as a 30 year old today would be as opposed to a 30 year old in the 90s And that 30-year difference is profound in the way women carry themselves in the world. So I I like to think that she is a stronger character, a more independent character, a more realized person in the current iteration of the series than she was originally. And that was a conscious choice. Yeah. Oh, Oh,
3: sorry. I have a question about how accessible, how possible is it to find things reporters wrote? and like to read their fiction and is there something in particular that might be like a prior kind of, you know, something on the level of that would capture the imagination.
1: So most of their books are available on Google Books or uh, some on Project Gutenberg. There are people who've brought them into modern editions, however, with great footnotes and introductions. <laughs> And Thaddeus Warsaw, there's a great edition from Edinburgh University Press, edited by Tom McLean and Ruth Knezhevich. And there's a great edition of Jane Porter's second bestseller, The Scottish Chiefs from 1810, that came out from Broadview Press. That book, interestingly, continued to be popular into the 20th century. It was a classics illustrated comic book in the 1950s. So if you want to know, both of these, both of those are probably the ones you could find, an edition that would tell you, here's where Jane is messing with history, here's where she's more or accurate in her history, if you care about that, a modern edition will tell you that. If you don't care, then you can find a freely available edition another place. But there was actually a novel, Honor O'Hara, by M- Mariah Porter, that was written in the style of Jane Austen. It was clearly an homage to Jane Austen. And there is a record of Robert Kerr Porter, the sister's favorite brother, and Charles Austen, oh. uh, Jane Austen's naval brother, meeting and uh, Charles Austin is reading Honor O'Hara. So I just imagine that's that fantastic. the two brothers, Robert Kerr Porter and Charles Austin, must have been having conversations about yeah. their famous sisters. This was in the 1820s after Jane Austen was dead. Uh, but so there is a very much an Austin like Porter novel, and that's Honor O'Hara.
2: Interesting. I mean if you kind of think that Oh, sorry. No, if you just if you think that on some level Jane was writing homages to Fanny Burney or, you know, it's this
0: yeah, I was going to mention earlier that I remember an absolutely fabulous biography of Fanny Burney. Unfortunately, I do not recall who read it. I mean, who wrote it, but I loved it. I thought it was wonderful.
1: Kate Chisholm or Margaret Duty or I question? don't.
0: I just don't remember. But I was fascinated with it. it was, I, I read it like forty years ago. So <laughs> Probably Margaret Duty. <laughs> it might well have been really wonderful book. Yeah. If you don't know Fanny Burney, she's another another literary lady that you can go back and. Yeah, Karen, you want to ask our last question?
3: Bernie, But I'm thinking about Mariah Edgeworth and yeah. all of all of these women, uh Amphraban who's sure go is what's sixteen eighty, I think, somewhere in there. Um I mean there's there's definitely a trajectory of these women who back when I was in grad school in like the nineteen there were editions coming out of their work. And of course Austin was always Virago. The but
2: why <laughs> why the Virago editions. Sorry? <laughs> the Virago editions. Yeah, the Viragos,
3: and the, and I mean, yeah. even Penguin was putting out Ryan mm-hmm. and and um, and of course, Anne Radcliffe. Anne Radcliffe. And why were the port? What, what yeah. was different about the porters that back in that time period, you know, thirty years ago or twenty years ago, whenever? Why were not their works getting kind of rediscovered?
1: I think Sir Walter Scott wiped them out. Oh, okay. I think they got classed as children's literature and abridged and so therefore weren't taken seriously in the academy. Uh, But also I think historical fiction doesn't travel as well. You know, we read Hilary Mantel and love her work now for good reason. It's hard for me to say in 100 years, will that look like the 21st century's version of (laughs) the 16th century or, you know, to read the 19th century's version of the 16th century is two removes. So I think that also is against them, but they got classed as minor novelists and they never got recovered. And for whatever reason, second wave feminists just didn't get excited about them in the same way.
3: Uh, It's interesting. I I mean, I'm only about eighty pages in, and I love your book. I, I mean, it's obviously very well researched, but it's very engaging, very readable, very. um, It does read like a novel. Um, But one of the things that I thought was funny was that one of the books that they wrote seems to be at least one of the sources for Braveheart. Yes. Which that's the Scottish. (laughs)
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, so The Scottish Chiefs is a William Wallace story, and it seems pretty clear that Mel Gibson's film uh, ripped off or riffed on some of the same elements that Jane Porter added into the story. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. Is that a claim to fame or a claim to shame? Right. An association? <laughs> so I will let you figure that out, but question mark, right? Thank you. Was Great question. Was it really question.
0: Sir Walter Raleigh, or was it the publication? Sir I'm sorry, Sir Walter. Schott. Yeah, wrong guy with the cloak. Right? Um, or was it was it the whole sort of publicity and publishing machine around him that that caused? I mean, I, I have trouble imagining him as an actual literary villain, but maybe he was.
1: The sisters refer to him as a vampire and a th- and a thief.
0: Ooh. And.
1: One of the things that adds weight to that is that they were actually all childhood friends. So how do you like that? (laughs) And so the idea that Scott wouldn't come out publicly and say I was inspired by the Porter sisters Mm -hmm. to them was personal as well as professional. Yeah. Uh, There was a lot of borrowing going on. All they wanted was for him to say publicly or even just privately that their novels had inspired him. And he never did. At least not to their faces. And there's a long Jane Porter takes it to the public in her late life and it does not go well. Mm. But that the plot spoiler, right? I'll let you I'll let you read that. Other plot spoiler, both of them die at the end.
2: So yeah. Oh no. Of course so did Sir Walter. So. so
0: I think I think our um canine companion has indicated that it's time for us to stop. (laughs) She's so sacked out on the floor over there. Isn't she adorable? (laughs) she is. Right? I want to thank you all very much for coming. Let's give our authors a round of applause and thank them. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.